This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for what it tells us, and we recognize that no matter how much we may come to learn through our own experience, that we can truly understand our experience only when first we understand your word, and that we can interpret our experience then on the basis of your word. Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Colossians, as we come face to face with what Scripture teaches about the sufficiency of Christ and about his preeminence and that we have all things in him, that we may come to a greater understanding of what it means to live on the basis of our life in Christ, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to advance a few verses in Colossians into the 10th and 11th uh, verses of this chapter. Now, this section that we're in is one of the most significant sections of all of Scripture, for there are things that the Apostle Paul says in these verses that he doesn't say anywhere else. Part of that must be because of the context of the Colossian Christians and the specific problems that they're facing. But another part of it is that as we look at the uh, mosaic of Scripture, that what God says and what he reveals to us in one book, he complements and develops in another book, so that the only way we get the full picture and the whole picture is by comparing Scripture with Scripture and by coming to understand the totality of, of God's revelation. And one of the words that we use when we talk about God's revelation, when we talk about what we have in Christ, is the word sufficient. But the word sufficient is one of those words that sometimes I think it's, it's either because we're too familiar with it, we use it too frequently, that somehow we miss the boat on what it means when we say that the word of God is sufficient, that Christ is sufficient, that God's grace is sufficient. So the question I'm asking this morning is, is sufficient enough? Which is a tautology. So you can just look that word up later. That means it's, is it redundant? It's sufficient enough. Last week I posed the question that I want you to continue to think about through this section, and that is, what is it that makes your life full? Thinking back upon all your experiences, on all the things that have happened in your life, when were those times when you felt the most 
alive, the most full, the closest to God, or just the, the, the happiest in your life, whatever that circumstance might have been. And then ask the question, what was it that made that time so significant? What made it such that you felt like that defined what real life was, was all about? As we go through this section of Colossians, we must understand that what the Apostle Paul teaches, and it's not any different from what the rest of the Word of God teaches, but what the Apostle Paul teaches and is emphasizing here is there's really only two paths in life. There's only two options. One option is a narrow option, to borrow from Jesus' analogy. Narrow is the way to life. Narrow is the path to life. The other is a broad path. It's comprised of many different options, but they all basically share the same characteristics. And those characteristics are the core characteristics of what the Bible calls worldly thinking, or what I often refer to using the Greek term, cosmic thinking. Uh, uh, And it's characterized by two fundamental uh, principles. The first is autonomy or independence from God that that we demand our independence, that man thinks that he can do it without God. He can do it on his own. And the second, which is bred by the first, is a hostility or antagonism to God. So we have two A's, autonomy and antagonism. We want to be independent, and whenever anything challenges that independence to whatever degree, then that, and, and we're, and, and, the fact that we need to be dependent upon God is exposed, then that results in antagonism toward God and resentment toward God. So in Colossians, Paul continues to develop this idea that there's only two options and there's only one way for a truly rich, full, happy life, and that is God's way. The only problem is that man's way in our day-to-day experience often seems more rich, more robust, more immediate. The experiences and the feelings that are generated through various various uh, human viewpoint techniques for finding meaning in life seem so much more real, so much more full at times than what uh, what Scripture offers. But it always turns out that the human viewpoint solution is always just a cotton candy happiness. It gives a little pleasure for a short time, and then it just sort of disappears. But unfortunately, many of us are willingly deceived. That's the idea that we see in our verse in Colossians chapter uh, 2, verse 8, this idea of philosophy and empty deceit. Many of us are willingly deceived into thinking that real life is defined by those immediate feelings and perceptions. That becomes more real to us. Our experience becomes more real to us than what the Word of God says. Since we just came out of our Thanksgiving meal a couple of days ago, uh, let me use that for an illustration. I'm not sure, but I would guess that your Thanksgiving meal was not much different from my Thanksgiving meal. There was turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes and a variety of casseroles and other vegetables. And no matter how good or healthy some of those other dishes were, I would bet that if you looked around the buffet table at your house, it was like the one where I spent 
Thanksgiving, and there were more desserts than anything else. We had six people. We had six desserts. We had, and that was disappointing. There were four pies. There was a flan. There was, uh, of course, the ubiquitous half gallon of bluebell homemade vanilla, plus a few other things that were were available. And for many of us, myself included, it's just like the turkey and the dressing and that other stuff is just the appetizer for the real reason we're there, and that is to enjoy all of those desserts because we just love all of that good sugar stuff that we don't get to eat the rest of the time, and so we just really want to enjoy that. And many of us suffer for, for that very reason for the next several weeks or months as we try to get rid of the excess that those calories put on us. For many people, life is dessert. It's not that which promotes health, but that which gives the immediate gratification, that which gives an immediate sense of, of pleasure and enjoyment and gets all of the various uh, chemicals jumping around in our body so that we think that this is where real real meaning in life can be found. And we live in a generation that is defined by the fact that meaning in life, real happiness, is defined by what stimulates us, what gives us pleasure, what gives us enjoyment, what makes us feel good. Hence, we have a high rate of alcoholism, which deadens the pain or the misery of various aspects of our lives, recreational drug use, recreational sex, the alarming increase of overweight people who've derived their comfort too much from their food, and now they pay the price with high blood pressure, adult-onset diabetes, liver disease, heart problems, acid reflux, and numerous other physical maladies that plague us as we get older. And this is only one of various uh, empty, deceptive philosophies of our day. This would be more the licentious philosophy that anything goes and there's no real moral boundaries. But on the other side, we know there are those who seek to find meaning and happiness in life by following rigid rules and uh, strict religious regimens. But all of this, or much of this, especially as it relates to our pop culture, comes out of a history. It's not something that just happened in the 90s or in early part of the 21st century. But what we're seeing today is really the fruit in our culture of a plant whose roots went into the soil of Western civilization uh, over 150 years ago. And there were four big names that came along during that time, and those big names are Darwin, Freud, Marx, and I'm going to add Blavatsky. Now, Blavatsky may be a name that you're not familiar with, but you will be in a little while. See, we have a culture that, due to the influence of some of these thinkers that many people didn't even hear about during their lifetimes, but as a result of their influence on our culture, our culture has significantly changed in the last 150 years, and it's a result of the fruit of their philosophies. Now, what they said wasn't that new. 
They put a new face on it. They dressed it up in new clothes. They gave it new terminology. But as Solomon observed in Ecclesiastes, there's really nothing new under the sun. And the Colossian believers face these same problems. And this is what Paul is addressing in the verses that we've been looking at. I just want to review these these five verses because it sets the context of where Paul is going in this next section. The command is at the end of verse 6. Walk in him. That's the thrust. Everything that is said from now through the next uh, chapter, chapter 2, that is all chapter 2 and chapter 3, defines what he means by this mandate to walk in him. He says, as you therefore as therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having already been rooted and now being grounded, built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And then the warning, second command here, you don't get another command until verse 15, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. And I pointed out last time that that really isn't cheat. It's the, it's the idea of somebody plundering you. That you've been given the riches of Christ, so you have a bank account that has infinite resources in it, and yet when we bail out and we operate on human viewpoint, problem-solving techniques for life, basically what we're doing is we're letting the devil plunder our bank account and we're living as paupers instead of as those who are rich. So Paul says, Beware lest anyone plunder you through philosophy and empty deceit. And here he's not addressing what we think of as a narrow view of philosophy, as I pointed out last time. He's not talking about the courses you'll take necessarily at Rice or University of St. Thomas or University of Houston. Many of those things would be included here, but it's a broader term because everybody has a philosophy of life. Uh, whether you've thought it through or not, you may have a conscious philosophy of life or you may have an unconscious philosophy of life, but you have one whether you recognize it or not. So he warns, watch out lest someone plunder you through philosophy or through the empty, de- empty deceptive philosophy according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Why? Because we're to be living according to Christ, not according to those basic principles of the world or the tradition of men. That's the human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Notice it's a complete break between the two. And then as we came to this last time, I'll develop it a little more this this morning, for in him, that is in Christ, and we're in Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now, it's these last two verses that are going to be unpacked and opened up for us in the following verses, starting in verse 11. The apostle is going to help us to understand what it means that all the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in Christ, and we, because of that, are complete in him. But I want to go back and say a few more things about uh, what we've already covered in verse 8 and following. There, Paul started by saying, Beware lest anyone cheat you or plunder you through philosophy and empty deceit. And I pointed out that the uh, main idea here is a warning about this empty 
deceptive philosophy. The words uh, translated empty deceit, kinos, meaning that which is empty of all intellectual, moral, spiritual value. And if we take a look at, at where 20th, 21st century Western civilization has, where, where it's originated and how it's developed over the last 150 years, we must admit, unless, of course, we're sold out to the philosophies that have dominated the last 150 years or so that have produced two major world wars and multiple regional conflicts and continue to uh, uh, promote uh, all manner of, uh, of uh, problems and heartache in uh, modern, our modern world, that it offered an empty deceit, an emptiness that is empty of all intellectual, moral, and spiritual value because it rejected anything and everything outside of a literal, physical, observable world. And that uh, the word translated um, uh, deceit is a word that is also translated as pleasure. And so we see a connection between our world and the world of the Colossians in the first century, that there's a deceptiveness through the pleasures of the world that are promoted through the philosophies of the world or, or human viewpoint. And that this philosophy is built on certain standards. The two things that are pointed out in that verse, it's according to the tradition of men, and that tradition is a tradition that extends all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.1, we learn of the first question that is asked of, of, of this new creature, man, the first question that we know of. That is the question that the serpent addresses to Eve. And that question is designed to, to cause her to begin to think down the wrong path. She begins to think according to the wrong standards. If you ask the wrong question, you're going to head in the wrong direction. I had a professor in uh, college that used to say it's not important to know the answers. It's important to ask the right questions. But if you ask the question in wrong ways, it can lead your, in terms of your answers, down a wrong path. And so this is what happened in the garden. The serpent questioned Eve and said, has God really said? You see, the question that is not stated is, is God's instruction something that really has your best interests in mind? Is God's instruction and provision really adequate, or is it enough, or is it sufficient? Because God had told Adam and Eve that when he had planted all of the trees in the garden, that they could eat from any and every tree except for one, and that he had provided everything that was in the garden for their nourishment and for their sustenance. In other words, God said, I've given you everything you need. You don't need anything else. You don't need to add anything to what I have given you. I didn't leave anything out. And the reason God could say that is because God is omniscient. He knows all of the knowable. So because God is omniscient and he knows everything there is to know, and God knows every circumstance in each of our lives, he knows everything that happens, he knows all the things that could have happened, would have happened, should have happened. He knows every permutation of every option 
There's nothing that he has ignored or forgotten or mistaken. He knows everything so that whatever the circumstance is that we're going to face, we know that he's provided for just as he implied when he instructed Adam and Eve that he had given them all that they would need for food. He knew that nothing was left out. In his omniscient, he knew everything that they would require in order to live a healthy life. But yet there's this question now that the serpent asks is, is it really enough? You know, there's one tree that you can't eat from. Maybe that's going to give you something that it's not that it's harmful for you, but that it, it's going to give you something that God doesn't want you to have, but it's really something good. And so Satan is raising this doubt in the mind of Eve that somehow God's withholding something good from us, that I can add to God's provision and everything is still going to be okay. By asking the question the way that uh, Satan uh, asked the question, he was implying that God's provision was not sufficient. He's also implying that one can add to God's sufficient provision and there won't be a penalty. He said, you, you won't die. So Eve bit. She didn't bite the fruit yet. She bit the bait. And she began to think down that path that Satan had laid down for her by asking the question the way she did. She began to put herself in a position to judge and evaluate God, but she lacked the necessary skill set to be able to evaluate everything around her because she lacked omniscience. And only a creature who has the same level of knowledge as God can judge God, and no creature by definition has omniscience. But yet this is the problem with fallen creatures is that we think we know more than God. We think we know what we need to solve the problems because we think we know enough based on our experience or on our reason. That's what happened with Eve. She decided she knew enough and that she could take that fruit and eat it. But see, our senses can give us a lot of knowledge. Our reason can take us a lot of places in terms of intellectual development. But there are certain things that God reveals to us that are known only by revelation that are the critical factors that define everything that we learn through experience or through thinking. We think we know enough, but all of a sudden God tells us that here's something you didn't consider. Once we understand that, it changes how we view everything else. There were a lot of things that Adam and Eve could learn from observing all the fruit, all the trees, everything in the garden. They could probably have spent centuries recording all of their observations and all of their studies on everything that was there. But the one piece of critical information that was missing that they could never learn from observation, could never learn through their use of either empiricism or rationalism, was the critical piece of information that if they ate from one tree, instantly they would die spiritually. So that piece of information was revealed by God, and having that piece of information, they could live forever in the garden in dependence upon God, but they chose to question that piece of information. 
The result was that she ate the fruit. She then offered it to her husband, Adam. He ate the fruit, and the result was calamitous. The result immediately plunged the human race into something that Bible students and theologians and pastors refer to as spiritual death, a spiritual break in the relationship between man, mankind, the creature, and God, the creator. Spiritual death is understood as separation from God, that when man, the creature, the image bearer, the one who is to represent God, is separated from his creator, he's cast adrift upon a sea of spiritual, intellectual, and moral darkness. This is exactly what we see as a result of this shift in thinking that occurred in the 19th, in the 19th century. We're cast adrift in darkness upon a swamp, and that no matter how much we seek to illuminate that which is around us to find meaning and direction, all we're left with in the final analysis is our own imagination, because what surrounds us is darkness, because that the, that information that we need that would illuminate everything is that which we've rejected. And so man is just basically guessing. We're, we're like you know, Plato's shadows in the cave. You're just guessing at what ultimate reality is on the basis of shadows cast on the wall, but those shadows have nothing to do with reality, and it's all just empty, empty imagination. And so Paul has warned them that don't be robbed, don't be... Uh, cheated, don't be uh, plundered through the empty deceit of philosophy that is built on the tradition of men. That's human viewpoint thinking that goes all the way back to the garden, or according to the basic principles of the world. And this had to do with the basic elements of the world. And I pointed out last time that, that in the Greek thought, the basic elements were earth, wind, uh, fire, water, and that these were all often deified. And man's thinking became deified. And so that the philosophy of the great Greek philosophers ultimately would become deified. So as we look at this, I want to remind you of the basis for knowing anything. Basic chart, many of you have seen it many times, that there are basic four ways in which we come to learn anything. The top three in this chart are man's attempt to define what's in the darkness without listening to God. Now, if you're in darkness and you don't know what's there, you know you're just making it up because you're missing critical elements, that which can be seen. And then there's the divine viewpoint. That is what God tells us in his word. Now, across the top of this chart, I've got three categories that will develop. The system, that is what it's named, its starting point, and the method. Now, the first two follow logic. Man tries to rigorously, in a disciplined manner, come to right conclusions. But because he starts wrong, he's going to end wrong. These two systems are called rationalism and empiricism. Now, rationalism isn't what is meant by the, by the common use of the term to rationalize something, which means just to somehow self-justify. It, it, it d- develops a, a, a theory of thought that we can come to truth just on the basis of what we have in our mind and the use of logic, that man is really capable of finding truth on his own 
through his own intellectual abilities. Empiricism recognizes that there's always a problem. If you start inside the mind, you never really get outside the mind. So you have to start with sense data, experience. And then you have a combination of these two, but in empiricism, strict empiricism, you start with sense perception, uh, external experience. And again, it's based on logic. The problem with both of these is that ultimately you're believing that human ability can give you truth. Truth with a capital T. Not lowercase truth, not one plus one equals two, or that the external skin of a red delicious apple is red, but that you can come to ultimate truth in terms of the ultimate realities of life. Those two always fail in history, and they're always followed by a third, which is mysticism, which is the kind of culture we live in today. If logic can't get you to truth, then you just take an existential leap in the darkness to believe in something so that it gives you some value or meaning or direction in life. It's based on some inner private experience of intuition or faith in human ability. But it's not logical. It's not based on reason. It's just based on hope and a leap. In contrast to those, we have revelation. Revelation alone, not revelation plus, because the Word of God is sufficient. It should be enough in and of itself. Revelation is based on a belief that God has spoken and what He has said is true, and we use logic, we use reason as we understand the Word, but the starting point is always what God what God said. So we're warned to beware of this kind of thinking that based on these basic principles. I pointed out last time there are three different ways in which this word storkeion is used uh, in the scripture, but the one that it's used here is the idea that it's the basic elements of the of the universe. But it's not in a scientific objective way. They're not just dealing with earth is earth and air is air is water is water or fire is fire but it has something to do with what lies behind those things. For these elements, as Paul indicates as well in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, have become deified. They become deified because if the creature rejects the creator, he's going to substitute something to worship. And so we worship the creation itself, the elements within creation. And what lies behind this is something that takes us into a, a realm beyond the physical. It takes us into the realm of the spiritual, specifically the demonic. See, in Western civilization, as a result of the thinking of our intellectual uh, forebearers in the 19th century, have rejected the existence of a world that we can't see or taste or touch. They've rejected the idea that there is a supernatural world. They just believe in a physical world. But what Paul is bringing out here in these passages and throughout Colossians is that the religion isn't something that just sits there as something that is, that is sort of neutral. Well, they're, they're into Rosicrucianism, so they're, that's just something they believe. It's no big deal or they're into Islam, that's really neutral and it's no big deal. It may not be right, but but don't worry about it. Or they're into whatever the false religion may be, it's just like it's a, some sort of neutral, isolated 
wrong belief system. But what we find in Scripture is that both Old and New Testaments teach that what lies behind this is something that is much more dangerous, and that is it's connected to another realm of reality, the angelic realm, and as we've studied in the past, the realm of the angelic conflict. And it's empowered and energized. These other beliefs are empowered and energized by by the demons. Deuteronomy 4.19 states, Take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. When you see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But then in Deuteronomy 32.17, Moses says that what really energizes these idols are demons that when you sacrifice to the moon god or to the sun god or to whatever nature god there is, that you are just sacrificing to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. And in 1 Corinthians 10.20, he says that, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And so behind this is a spiritual reality that is genuine evil. There's no neutrality out there. Hinduism, Mormonism, Buddhism, Islam, whatever the philosophy may be, existentialism, nihilism, idealism, empiricism, these are all energized ultimately by Satan. And there is a spiritual darkness that comes as a result of that. Now, in our history, in our culture, when we uh, transfer what Paul is saying here to the deceptive philosophies of our day, we have to go back to what I consider to be four key people. You could add one or two others, John Dewey and a couple of others, but, but these are the real benchmarks, the foundation stones of our current problems. Charles Darwin origin of the species, that God is not necessary to uh, define the origin of the human race or the origin of the solar system, that everything just happened by time plus chance, so the only real meaning is just the immediate. There's nothing supernatural. Everything is simply natural and is explainable on the basis of natural causes. Then we have to his right, Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud says you don't need God in order to solve the problems of life that you're facing emotionally or psychologically because God is just, God is just something that has been made up as sort of a crutch. And Karl Marx said the same thing, that religion is just the opiate of the masses. Uh, even though when he was about 16 or 17 years of age, he, he, At that time, as a Christian, his father had converted from Judaism to Christianity, and Karl Marx wrote a paper that was a brilliant exposition of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So watch out. He may be your next-door neighbor in heaven. And then the last is Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Now, she's the founder of something that was known as theosophy. She's sort of the... Uh, great-grandmother of the modern New Age movement. Satan's the great-great-great-granddaddy of the modern New Age movement, but she, is, she and others with her 
uh, combined ideas of Eastern mysticism from Hinduism and Buddhism with uh, various other self-help techniques and spiritism and things of that nature and gave birth to what I think is the modern mystical uh, religious mindset that has given birth to the New Age. But back in the 80s, the New Age movement was, was, was new, so to speak, and was on the scene. Everybody talked about it. Now it's mainstream. Uh, the average uh, person watching TV and watching Dr. Phil and Oprah, they're getting fed a diet of a lot of New Age ideas, and they don't even know it. The, the terminology's changed a little bit. It's been sanitized and uh, uh, given pseudoscientific terminology, but it's, it's the same old stuff. So you have the rationalists and empiricists represented by Darwin in the field of science, Marx in the field of economics, and Freud in the field of psychology. And then uh, when that fails to bring real meaning, and most thinkers believe that the that that all represented what was called modernism that came out of the uh, came out of the Enlightenment. That when that all failed, then we had to turn to drugs. We had to turn to LSD and have mystical uh, experiences induced by hallucinogens and find meaning that way. And that opened the door to the development of the whole or, or mainstreaming the whole New Age movement. That comes from your mystic. Uh, once uh, empiricism, rationalism can't provide meaning, then you jump into the mystic. Now, what these human viewpoint solutions all have in common is the fact that God isn't enough, the Bible isn't enough, Jesus isn't enough, the cross isn't enough. Those are just myths. Those are just legends. These are just things that man generated on his own, made up on his own like everything else. And at the very core, there is a rejection of the sufficiency of God, of the existence of God, for sure, in many cases, but the idea that religion really can't solve your problems. See, if you think about all of these different men, what they were ultimately attempting to do is to come up with a framework so that man could be happy, so that man could bring in a utopic society, so that we could solve the problems of of health and the problems of poverty and the problems of personal misery and the problems of unhappiness so that we could find real solutions to life's problems. But at the core, it's a rejection of what God says. So they're saying, yeah, God's okay. Most of these religions will give some kind of lip service to the fact that God, Jesus, the Bible, that's all okay. But, you know, if you really want help, if you really want the key to life, then you have to do X, whatever X may be. That's what's going to supply the ultimate answer. So it's a rejection of the sufficiency of God, and it's a focus on adding something to God. God plus something else. The Bible plus something else. Jesus plus something else. The cross plus something else. Grace plus something else. And that's that's the very problem that we have here in in Colossians, just look at, I want you to look at the context a little more with me today. Paul says in, in, in verse 8, Be, beware or watch out lest anyone plunder you through the deceptiveness of philosophy according to the tradition of men, the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So we're going to deal with this to some degree. Now, the first time we see him start to deal with this is in verse 11. He says, In him 
were you also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands? Where did this concept of circumcision come from? What's interesting is when you get down into uh, chapter 3, we get down into chapter 3, and he talks about, in verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Does that list sound familiar? Other passages that talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit talk about whether bond or slave, male or female, Jew or Greek, but they don't mention circumcision or uncircumcision. In fact, aside from Paul's discourse in Romans 2 and 3, which specifically dealt with the Jewish the wrong Jewish belief that circumcision was necessary for salvation. This is the only other place where we get a heavy dose of of, uh, focus on circumcision. And it's mentioned several times in this section because this was part of what was being taught in this this Colossian, Colossian heresy. We see a little bit more of it mentioned in, uh, if we start, if we look down around verse uh, 15. He's, uh, verse 16, rather. So let no one judge you in food or drink. So apparently there was an imposition of certain dietary laws. You don't need Jesus. You need Jesus in the right diet. Um, not necessarily the Old Testament diet, but it was an emphasis on on uh, right diet or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. In other words, observing certain days, the ritual. You have to you have to do certain things, eat the right diet, which is couched within a religious context. You have to observe certain ritual events and efforts. And if you don't do that, if you don't do all of these other things, follow the checklist. Jesus is great, but if you haven't followed the checklist, then Jesus isn't enough. He says in verse 18, of this chapter, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. See, that's mysticism. So we have legalism and mysticism. We have this emphasis on uh, ideas that came from, from Judaism, the emphasis on circumcision. It's a syncretistic stew. It's, it, he, these ideas are borrowed from Greek philosophy, from Greek religion, from Judaism, from Eastern, all mixed up together. So it was just its own uh, unique little blend that was being taught to them, and um, taught to them in their in their culture. So what we see is that it it has the characteristics of every other false religion, and that is it's adding something to these things. Now, before I leave the topic of what's going on today, I want to read to you from an article that was written in 1993 by Chuck Colson sort of summarizes in a nice way what I have just been saying about how uh, Darwin, Freud, Marx, and Blavatsky are the fountainheads of today's uh, cultural errors. The title of this article, which was written for the Creation Journal, was The Evolution of Pretty Girls. He begins, why do we find some people beautiful and others well plain? One psychologist says that we're responding to evolutionary principles. So you want to explain love and romance? What's the explanation? It's evolution. 
He goes on to say, to encourage the survival of the species, this psychologist says, evolution programs males to be attracted to females who look young and healthy. At the peak of their reproductive potential, females, on the other hand, are programmed to be attracted to males who look powerful, able to protect and provide for offspring. Well, I doubt that, Colson says, well, I doubt that many young couples in love think much about the survival of the species. But such is the nature of evolution that it has become an explanation for everything. See, what the Bible says is nice, but you really want an explanation for everything, you have to go to Darwin. He goes on to say, we're often told that evolution is just a scientific theory, but it has become much more than that. It's become an entire philosophy of life shaping every subject area. Take, for example, sociology. So I didn't mention that in my four. I would also add August Comte, as he does. The founder of sociology was French philosopher Auguste Comte, who proposed three stages of social evolution. Notice the blend sociology is built on evolutionary presuppositions for all you sociology majors. All societies, Comte said, move upward until they reach a stage of scientific enlightenment. Since Comte, most sociologists have accepted the assumption of evolution, he writes. We can only understand Karl Marx. Now we're getting into economics. We can only understand Karl Marx, for example, if we realize he taught a form of social evolution through a series of economic stages. In the field of law, most students today are trained in what is sometimes called sociological law. Remember, that's Colson's background, was a lawyer. It rejects any transcendent standard of justice and bases law on the judge's perception of changing social norms. And when you hear that phrase that the Constitution is a living document, that's the idea. Uh, this explicitly, this is explicitly labeled an evolutionary approach to law. In psychology, virtually all the leaders in the field have been committed Darwinists, from Freud to Pavlov to B.F. Skinner. They began with the assumption that human beings were merely advanced animals and sought to reduce human nature to animal functions, instincts, and reflexes. For a vivid example, read Alfred Kinsey's books on sexuality. The highest moral impulses of love and commitment, according to him, are reduced to physiological reactions. What about education? John Dewey, regarded as the father of American education, was an enthusiastic evolutionist. He argued that the human mind is a tool that has evolved by adaptation to the environment, just like a fin or a claw. The testament idea is therefore not whether it is true, Dewey said, but merely whether it works, whether it helps us adapt to our circumstances. Dewey's evolutionary philosophy led to a profound relativism that is evident in our schools today. Modern values teach Modern values teaching tells children that they can choose whatever values work for them. Now, the reason I read that is because we're all like fish. We were born into a sea, and this is what comprised that sea. And you can't escape it. None of us can. But we swam around that sea. We didn't even know that that sea was there. But we grew up within this sea of moral relativism and We got saved out of that. But it so influenced us that the rest of our lives as Christians is to be devoted to learning what it means that God is sufficient and the Bible is sufficient and that Christ is sufficient and that we don't need anything else. And that's not any different from what's gone on before 
in all the centuries. We need to learn that the divine viewpoint solution is God plus nothing else, that the Bible plus nothing else, and Jesus plus nothing else, and the cross plus nothing else. The problem is that we don't even recognize how often and how frequently we're adding to the scriptures, to God, to Jesus, and to the cross because of the influence of our culture around us. And this is the contrast that Paul brings out here in these uh, last two verses of this opening section where he says that it is in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that everything that God is, the nature of God, as I pointed out last time, what makes God God dwells fully in Jesus Christ. The word there translated dwell is the word katoikeia, keo meaning to dwell or to reside somewhere. And that it is in Christ that Paul is saying here in a, in a profound way that not just that Jesus is fully God, but if you want, want access to everything that God is, then it's we have that access in Christ because Christ has all the attributes of God. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He has everything. So I pointed out last time, there's a couple of different words that are used in the New Testament for uh, the Godhead. And the word that is used here is the one on the left, theotes, meaning the divine nature of the state of being God. So he's making a profound statement. Jesus is God. And he says that in him dwells all the fullness. Now, this is an interesting play on words because this concept of fullness, pleroma, was sort of a, uh, uh, a key word within this, this uh, mystical hash that was being promoted as religion in Colossae. That, that the only way you could be complete was to jump through all these hoops, to follow all these rules and regulations, to, to make sure that you followed uh, certain, the rites of circumcision, that you observed certain days, observed certain diets. Man has to add. God, Jesus just isn't enough. You have to add all this other stuff to him. That way you have the fullness, the pleroma. But Paul says, no, that we are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Christ, as was stated earlier in Colossians chapter 1, is the one who created uh, all principalities and powers. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Now, what does this mean? A couple of passages from Ephesians clarify this. In Ephesians three ten and 11, Paul states, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to this same group, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So what we learn here is that this isn't earthly, they're heavenly. And then in Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, in that great passage dealing with spiritual warfare, he says that we are to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand what? 
against the wiles or the strategies of the devil. So what he's talking about here is he locates this now within the context of the, the spiritual warfare against Satan and his fallen angels. And then Paul explains it further in verse 12, where he uses our two words, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. This explains the hierarchy, the order uh, organization within the satanic hordes. Uh, They're called the rulers of the darkness of this age. And this is our enemy, the ultimate one that we're fighting against. And so verse 13, he concludes, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. What's the solution? Take up the whole armor of God and get a good degree in counseling. I can't tell you how many classmates of mine from Dallas Seminary felt after getting a THM and understanding the scriptures said, well, I really can't help people. Let me go someplace and get a degree in psychology so I can help people. That, that was 40 years ago almost. It's worse today. Because now they don't have to go somewhere else. They get it in the seminary classroom, not just there, but many other places. It's that we add to Scripture. It's not enough. And this is, where, what's the source of this? The source of this is the same source that we found in Genesis 3. It's the source in Satan. God's not enough. Did he really say that? Can you really trust it? Is sufficient really enough? No, you need something else. Colossians 1.16, Colossians 2.10, 2.15, I'll use this terminology. Colossians 1.16, I read a minute ago that, God, that, that Christ created all the principalities of power. That includes a hierarchy of all the angelic hosts, fallen and elect. Colossians 2.10, we're complete in him because he's the head over those things. So, so when you have these false religions, they're, they're energized and empowered by Satan And he's under Christ's authority. So are you paying attention to that? Let's go with Christ. He's the one who's sufficient. And then this section will end with this tremendous discourse that we're about to start on the cross, which concludes with what one of the results of the cross, that Christ disarmed the principalities and powers. That's the real disarmament treaty that was has any effect, and that's the one that occurred on the cross, that Satan can't do anything without Christ's permission, and ultimately his defeat was secured at the cross, where principalities and powers were disarmed and made a public spectacle. And so what's the point of all of this? The point is that as Christians who are in Christ, which is the thrust of this whole section, we have been given everything. When you add anything to it, you destroy what you've been given. It's grace plus nothing. It's God plus nothing. It's Christ plus nothing. It's the cross plus nothing. It is everything that God has given us. How in the world did any Christian ever get to the point where they could live a happy life and be successful in their spiritual life if they had to wait for that Gnostic insight from Charlie and from Carl and from Sigmund. See, that's absurd. Yet you have Christians today who say, oh, I just couldn't live if I didn't have psychology. No, you would probably be able to discover real life if you hadn't have been infected with psych- the psychology bug. 
because modern psychology that derives from Freud is nothing more than a human viewpoint lie, that Jesus isn't enough, the scripture isn't enough. You just have to learn some psychology and learn the techniques uh, of all the different systems. There's over 400 different systems of psychology. Which one's right? You have all kinds of different options. But the scripture says there's only one way, and that way is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of your sufficiency, that you have given us everything because you are everything. You are omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. There is nothing that escapes you. There is nothing that is in existence that did not come into existence by you. Uh, Therefore, we know that you know all things, and you know all things that might be, could be, or should be. You know everything that is, and you have made provision for us. So there's no circumstance, situation, or challenge in life that we can't face and experience real happiness and joy and stability on the basis of trusting in you and you alone, in your word, in your word alone, in Christ, and all that he is and all that we have in him. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning or listening that has never uh, come to a full understanding of their eternal destiny, never, never understood how to have eternal life, that they would take the opportunity right now to focus on that issue. Jesus said, I came to give life, and he gives it as a free gift. Simply by believing in him, trusting in him, we have eternal life. It's on the basis of faith and not by works, lest any man should boast. It's all Christ, all the provision of God and nothing that we add to it. For when we add to it, we destroy it, and it becomes another, a different, a false gospel. All you need to do if you've never trusted in Christ right now is to believe in him, believe that he died on the cross as a substitute for you for your sin that was paid for at the cross so that now you have eternal life, you are in him, and all that he is and has is yours. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with what we study today, that as we continue to press through this section of Colossians and understanding all that we have in Christ, that it might be used by God the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and to challenge us in our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.